Welcome back to QAV, the COVID edition. This is uh, episode <laughs> 527. Fortunately, I'm the one with COVID and not you, TK. How are you, TK? Healthy. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Alex has got COVID, eh? You've got COVID. We know plenty of people who've got it again, so it's out and about. It's back if it ever went. But you're okay. You're not feeling too bad. Yeah, this is day five of symptoms for us. I tested positive uh, three days ago, I think. And yeah, I'm a little bit nasally, uh, but that's about it. I'm pretty much over it. Really only had one or one and a half days where I felt a little bit coldy. Had a cough, bad cough for a day, a bit of a runny nose, but that's it. Chrissy's been fine for a couple of days. Yeah, I think we're in Utah still, and it's the sixth worst state in the United States for cases per capita or something at the moment. So. Not really surprising that we caught it, but there you go. Actually, as it was good to catch it in Salt Lake City because Chrissy's got family here and they were good enough to look after us and bring us food and, and rat tests and stuff like that. So uh, looking after us, it's nice to get sick in a place where there's family to look after you, I guess. Yeah, right. Good. And you're back from uh, your little trip down to Wagga? I couldn't stand underwater world in Sydney any longer. And it just rained all last week. And uh, Jenny had board meetings for most of it. So she was just, well, I hardly ever saw her anyway. So she was very busy from sunup till, till way into the evening. So, uh, yeah, I just packed up and went down to Wagga where it was sunny. Roddy was back from his. He had a holiday up in the Northern Territory. So I caught up with him and we played golf and we drank whiskey and we did uh, had a degustation meal one night, which was lovely. So, yeah, it's been good. It was a good circuit breaker. In Wagga. Yeah, it's cold. Like it was down to zero in the mornings down there. But um, beautiful sunny days about sort of anywhere between 14, 17 degrees, depending on the day. So it was nice. It was lovely. Lovely. It's a well-kept secret, Wagga. It's actually quite nice. The standard of restaurants and bars are great. It's a lovely little town. Yeah, that's great. I'll have to go down and visit uh, Ruddy down there sometime. I'll tell you, I guess, in after hours about all the crazy cool things that we've been doing before we got COVID. But the most amazing thing for me about this trip, I just realized a day or two ago, is I've lost five or six kilos since I've been here. Wow. Usually I come to the US and I put on 10 kilos and then spend the next year trying to lose it. This time I've lost five or six kilos, possibly from the amount of hiking that we've done. But also I think it's um, because Chrissy's not cooking while I'm here because- uh, Back home, Chrissy makes a big batch of food and then puts it in the middle of the table and I have a plate and then we get talking and then I absentmindedly have another plate and then absentmindedly have another plate because she eats three servings because she can because she's skinny as a twig and I sit there (laughs) and eat too much. But over here, we're just not eating much or as much. I'm not anyway. So that's been good. I'll have to come back here more often and lose more weight. I'm guessing Chrissy doesn't have the same serving size that you do either, even if she has three. No, she does. No, she has massive serving sizes. You know, my mother always says, oh, she's so skinny, she should eat more. I said, you should see how much she eats. She eats like a bloody army, but, uh, yeah, it has a fast metabolism. You need to get the gut bacteria out of her and put it into you. Yes. Isn't that the latest health thing, the, uh, the fecal transplant? Ugh. Ah, Tony, people are eating while they're listening to this, Tony. Google it, people. Let's get into uh, investing stuff. Nah, let's talk more about Utah and Salt Lake City. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not uh, 
not the most exciting subject to talk about right now. I get it. I saw this recent quote from uh, our old friend Richard Carrier. Richard Carrier's a philosopher and uh, has a PhD in, I think, ancient history. He was in our film, Marketing the Messiah, as the most hated of the scholars that we had. He's uh, very unpopular with uh, people in biblical scholarship because he calls bullshit on a lot of stuff. But I like Richard a lot. He's a fun dude. He wrote an article recently about evolution, and it, funnily enough, made me think of investing. He was talking about logical inconsistencies that people have and that struggle to understand when it comes to understanding complex topics like evolution. And here's the bit that I liked. He says, I find that scientists and even more so non-scientists suck at all kinds of reasoning, often because they simply don't know anything about poker or gambling in general and thus don't know how stochastic processes actually look when you observe them. For example, you would see punctuated equilibrium in a poker player's winnings record as the kind of rare hands that give them huge pot leads that allow them to dominate a table happen rarely, but have the immediate result of generating conspicuous windfalls. They kill one table after dozens of comparatively weak endings or losses. And I was thinking that sounds a lot like investing. Like, if I understand correctly, you're hanging in there for the big oversized wins, and then you have a lot of average-sized wins and a lot of losses, a lot of things that go backwards. But it's if I have understood your numbers correctly and, and what I've seen in the dummy portfolio over the last three years, the majority of the gains are made up with a small number of really big outsized wins and then you manage your losses as best as you can in between those big wins. Absolutely right. And you don't know when the big wins are going to come and you don't, it's it's the same process that generates a big win as compared to a loss or an average win. So yeah, no, it's, that's a really good, uh, good example. And well, it's a bit like what, you know, your approach to gambling, you've, he used to bet on my horses and then you had about half a dozen losses in the row. You went, oh, this is crap, and you folded. <laughs> and I think the next week something got up at 15 to 1. So yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's a good example. And and I've often said that one of the reasons why I've continued to be a horse better, horse punter, is because one thing informs the other. You know, they both involve allocating money. They both involve having a system. They both involve using the system unemotionally, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, they, they do inform each other. And po- I'm not a poker player, but it would be the same. That's my problem with the horse racing is you never gave me a system. <laughs> Just back my horse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking tips. Exactly. No, good point. And also, I didn't understand what the hell I was doing either. I was all over yeah. my head. I, I didn't understand any of it. Like that's a really good example. And the other thing is that evolution is alive in most people's investing lives in that one of the best examples, I think it might have been by Richard Dawkins, who's written some fantastic books on evolutionary theory, and I highly recommend them to people, starting with The Selfish Gene, of course, the most famous one, but there's plenty of other ones. But he said, you know, if you want to understand evolution, think about this research example, which is a live research example. There's this, a stream which has fish flowing along it, the researchers have been able to mark out a sort of like a 10-meter gap on the stream and control all the variables. There's one basic type of fish in the stream, 
and there's one bird that would fly in and eat those fish when they spotted them in the stream. So the researchers said, okay, let's uh, stack the cards here one way or the other. So they actually dammed part of the stream, caught a lot of fish, put a red dot on the back of some, put a blue dot on the back of the others, released them back into the wild, and then dropped a whole heap of blue pebbles onto the bottom of the stream in this 10-metre stretch. And after a week or so, came back and said, all of the fish with uh, red dots on their back have been eaten by the birds, but the blue ones have survived. Uh, and that's because the blue ones couldn't be seen against the blue rocks on the bottom of the streams, but the red ones could. So they, they said, great. And a little while went along and the, they let the fish population multiply again. And they reversed it and they put red pebbles on the streams and all the red fish survived. And it was just a, a really good example of how evolution works. People think, you know, because geological time spans takes hundreds of millions of years for things to evolve. That's how it happens, but it doesn't. It can happen in a week. And it's a bit like that with, with our investing. One cycle gets rid of all the growth investors who never, ever get value investing, who never get a system, patience, long-term capital appreciation, how a compounding interest works, all those kinds of things. And they're the redfish have just been pecked by the birds and they're all gone, leaving the bluefish. And that's that's a similar sort of uh, story about evolution and how it applies to investing. But we need the redfish, right? Because they're the ones that uh, bring all of the cash in and make bad decisions. We don't need them because we hardly ever trade with them, right? I don't, uh, I don't want to buy afterpay <laughs> off someone or Bitcoin off someone. Let them go off and do their own thing. But uh, no, we don't need them. Maybe they distract the investment bankers and keep them off our backs. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's it. But yeah. My point is that we evolve. The, the market evolves to leave people who over the long term, are comfortable with investing. I see Dawkins is coming to Australia, I think, later this year or next year. I got some alert to buy tickets. I went to buy tickets for when he's in Brisbane, and they were like 400 bucks a ticket. Like, wow. For big 400 bucks to see Dawkins. I can read his <laughs> books, but yeah. I'm a big fan of Dickie Dawkins, as my old mate Father Bob used to call him. <laughs> oh, Dickie Dawkins! All right, enough about evolution. Interest rate rise update, Tony. Uh, RBA has been uh, cranking it up. Yeah, another 50 basis points. So what are we at now? 1.35%, which people should have in their spreadsheets for the uh, IV2 calculation as the uh, RBA cash rate, which we add 6% to. But that's also meant the banks are putting their, their mortgage rates up. And that's another sell in our master spreadsheet where we test to see if the dividend yield is above the standard variable home rate. And they've been rising quite fast. Now, just to test you on this, I suggested that I should just put the mortgage rate up by 50 basis points as well, and just to check that you were paying attention, as I do from time <laughs> to time. And you said, no, that's not how it works, idiot. We, uh, we just- Didn't say idiot. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, read between the lines. It's okay. <laughs> and uh, you said, uh, no, we actually take the mortgage rate from the banks. Right. Yeah, just a point on that. So since we've been doing QAV, I've been putting in the standard variable rate. Now, most people will get a discount off that, so their own rate will be less than that. Mine is, I get about a 1.3% discount, I think, or so the bank tells me. You're never really quite sure because one person's rate's always different to another person's rate. So that's how they, they like it. So you can't compare and go back to them and try and do a deal. But um, you can plug your own interest rate. If you have got an, a mortgage and you're using it to invest, you can plug your own interest rate in there. 
it's what I've done for years. I've just tried to standardize it since QAV started for people who um, don't have a, a mortgage or who don't use it to invest. Um, and, and I've been putting the standard variable rate in, which is around sort of 5% at the moment. 5.14, I think we have in the sheet. There you go, 5.14. Okay. So if people are using Tony's sheet, uh, make sure you get the latest version from the club member resources page. And if you're using Andrew Flipman's sheet, the AF, AF model, make sure you plug in your own numbers into the uh, variables tab on that. Andrew did provide instructions or reminded us how to do that in the, the Facebook group and, and on Slack covering all of his bases. So thank you, AF, for that. Here's an interesting stat I found from Charles Schwab this week. Since 1974, the S&P 500 has risen on average of more than 8% one month after a market correction bottom and more than 24% one year later. I thought that spoke well to what you've always told me, that when the market turns around, it often turns around quickly. And if you're not there for that one month, because I know a lot of people in times like this, when the market's been falling for the last four months or whatever it's been, I think April is when it really started to turn down. You know, particularly people that have started their portfolios in the last six months and they see themselves underwater and they're like, oh, this sucks. I've had a couple of emails, not many, thankfully, but a couple of emails from people saying, I think I'm just going to bow out of the market and wait till it turns around again. And I'm always like, well, that's up to you. You can do that. But as a reminder, what Tony says, and this backs it up, when it turns around, if you're not there, if you're not paying attention, and you don't, and the problem is you don't know when it's actually turning around because it, it goes up, then it goes back down, then it goes up, then it goes back down, it goes back. But when it goes up and then goes up and then goes up and then goes up, if you're not there for that, you, you, you miss out on that 8%. And if it goes up 8% one month after a correction bottom and more than 24% over the whole year, that's a third of the year's growth you get in that one month. That first month contains a third of the year's growth. So well just to unpick that a bit and to be a bit a bit fairer, I typically miss the eight percent because we're waiting for the upturn to be established. So we need to see some firmness in the market. But I get the other twenty percent or sixteen percent or whatever it is. Plus it keeps going usually. So yeah, it's no one can pick the bottom. We only generally see it when we see that kind of J curve upturn that gets established and things start to break above their Joe or break above their three-point cell lines and we can buy them again. We need that kind of first 8% to confirm the tide's turned and then we get the rest. So I'm not sure from that quote whether it's 8% then 25 or whether it's the eights included in the 25, but generally you're getting a, a big return after that market turns anyway. But you know we're always trying to be fully invested as much as the system will allow us to be, waiting for it to tell us when to get back in, when it's established. Right. So we might miss some of that. You're right. And don't forget, that's the market average, right? We're going to get above average returns. So, you know, coming out of the GFC, I was getting 50% in 2009, not 25. Right. Yeah. Good point. Last note I've got here is uh, I saw in the financial review this morning, Charlie Munger, as if I need to say what he's, which Charlie I'm talking (laughs) about, the Charlie has invested in his Australian soulmate or Berkshire Hathaway's Australian soulmate. Did you see this story? I haven't read the Fin Review yet. No, someone's someone's zooming with me at 8.30 in the morning. 
Well, this was published at 5 a.m., Tony, so you had hours uh, right. which you could have read. <laughs> yeah. There's a company called Stonehouse Corporation run by American-turned-Australian Charles Jennings who was successfully emulating the Berkshire playbook to acquire and manage businesses for the long term. And Charlie goes on to say, I got interested in one Australian because I think he's very much like the kind of people that are in Berkshire. Berkshire and Jennings are quite similar. He's picky and manages things well, and a bunch of this sort of reminded me of us and of you. He has a mindset very much like ours, business fundamentalism and relentless rationality and doing business in a very high-grade way. If you're relentlessly rational, you don't make a lot of mistakes other people made. It sounds so obvious. You think everybody's willing to stay rational, but of course they aren't. The world's full of madmen. (laughs) 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 Mr. Munger, 98, is the vice chairman of Berkshire and the close business partner of the world's most famous investor, bloody, bloody, blah. So, yeah, this guy owns three businesses, I think. Let's see. Goldner's Horse Transport. Oh, no, I pay bills to them every month, Goldner's. <laughs> there you go. You should have just bought them like this guy did, Tony. Right. He founded his investment holding company in 2012. The Goldner's Horse Transport, portable cooling manufacturer and distributor Evacool, or Evacool, I guess, and Prestige Plants, a supplier of high-quality plants in Australia. Before being acquired by Stonehouse, the three subsidiaries were typically family-owned businesses contending with business succession and ownership exits. Mr. Munger said the audited accounts of Stonehouse's businesses were ridiculously good. He owns radically different businesses, which is a Berkshire-type thing, Mr. Munger said. He's just got three big businesses in 12 years. Berkshire's top 40 deals in its whole history amount for most of our achievement. Life is a game where you work very hard and deal only occasionally. Sounds like the, the poker analogy, again, going back to uh, um, Richie Carrier's quote. He treats the businesses with a pretty extreme decentralization, which is very much like Berkshire, Mr. Munger said. It's very hard to acquire unrelated companies, earn a higher return on capital, and pay market prices for them. Most people who try to do that fail. And the only reason that Berkshire and Stonehouse succeed is that we don't do it very often and we're pretty careful. So, uh, yeah, Jennings says, having Charlie become involved in our business has been surreal. I've admired him my whole life and he's now become a business partner. So I thought there's a bucket list goal for you, Tony, is uh, we have to get Charlie to invest in QAV at some point. (laughs) Yeah, right. At least get him on the show. Or this guy, Jennings, I haven't heard of him. So Stonehouse, that's an unlisted company, I'm guessing, is it? I didn't look into it that much, but I'm assuming so, yeah. Well, that's well done. Well, it's interesting that Charlie would invest in that company. I can't imagine it's very big if it owns a flower business and a horse float business. Maybe it is, I don't know. Worth looking into. Yeah. So what do you got to talk about today, TK? Well, you're talking about evolutionary algorithms, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Copic indicator for people who haven't heard about it. And for a couple of reasons, you know, we're getting comments and questions around, are we at the bottom yet? How long is it going to take? Are we buying again yet? All those kinds of things, which are quite natural. But I did want to point out that uh, this fellow Copic back in the 60s did some investment, the ESC Copic back in 62. 
published a technical analysis indicator called the COPIC curve or the COPIC indicator. And he did it because he was hired by the one of the churches in the States, the Episcopalian Church, I think, who had money to invest, surprise, surprise. And they asked him to, uh, to have a look at it for him. And, but he was just equally as curious about, uh, about them and human nature. And you know, he was smart enough to realize the best time to invest in the market is when it's turning up. So he was asking them about, uh, he was trying to align market behavior, which is a, a conglomeration of human behavior, individual human behavior. And he asked uh, the, the priest, how long do people grieve for? And they said, uh, anywhere between 11 and 14 months would be our experience. So he started uh, playing around with indicators which looked at 11-month periods in the stock market versus 14-month period, periods in the stock market, and through some other witchcraft in there, which smoothed it out over a long period of time. It came up with a Copic indicator, which generally shows the market turns about uh, between 11 and 14 months after a big downturn that the market goes through a, a grieving period as well. And the reason for, for talking about this is not because I've, you know, the Copic indicator is a great way to invest. It's pretty reliable. If you use the Copic indicator, you will get better than market returns. But what I found from examining it was that uh, you come in late on the upswings. It's again, one of these moving average lines where the short term goes over the long term and that kind of stuff. And so you're generally coming later into the upswing than you would if you're using our three-point trend lines. It's still something people might want to have a look at. And the other reason for raising it now is that uh, you can actually graph it in Stock Doctor as one of their studies if you're using the advanced graphing in Stock Doctor. If you call up the ASX index, I think it's called XAO in Stock Doctor, and then use a study on using the Copic indicator, it gives you the curve on the bottom of the graph. And the reason for talking about it now is that that curve is nowhere near turning up. So if Copic is right this time, then the downturn is merely beginning and any may or may not be right. I came across Copic very early on in my investing experience, and it was a it was used by a guy called Colin Nicholson in the Building Wealth Through Shares website and, uh, and service, which I used to subscribe to. He was a big adherent to it. And back in the days before we had great graphing, he used to put out a spreadsheet where he manually calculated the Copic indicator and then graphed it in Excel. So been around for a long time, does have some validity to it. Not something I use, but uh, I raise it because it isn't showing that we're getting anywhere near the bottom of grieving period for the latest stock market down, downturn. So we don't want to be a, a general who fights the last war. And by that, I mean, when we had COVID in March 2019, the downturn was abrupt and the upturn was very quick. So I'm not sort of jumping the gun here to get back into the market. And I want to see some trends established. But uh, yeah, have a look at the Copic Indicator, everyone, and, and do a bit of reading on it. It's very interesting. That's Copic. The next thing I wanted to talk about was just, just speaking of the Berkshire Hathaway gang, Buffett has uh, invested heavily in a Chinese electric vehicle company called BYD. And I noticed they've opened up a showroom down the road from us uh, on the way into the city in Sydney, but they've just become the biggest electric car manufacturer in the world. And I thought uh, I had a little bit of a, a laugh at that because uh, Tesla was overtaken by BYD. So it's uh, another example of growth beating or sorry, of uh, value-beating growth. So I just, I just raised that um, for a bit of a laugh. That's it for me. I'm going to do a pulled pork now. We've got time. Yeah. One of our listeners asked me to do a pulled pork on Whitehaven Coal, WHC, which isn't on the buy list. I think it has been over the last 12 months or so, but it's, it's sitting just below the buy list. 
has this QAV score of 0.09. And uh, I did this analysis uh, last uh, Friday at a price of 471. I noticed that um, over the weekend, the price closed on Friday higher than that. I'm a little bit out of date here, but um, just bear with me. Whitehaven Coal, people will probably know, is one of the biggest sole exposures to coal in Australia. There's there's New Hope and there's Whitehaven. It's uh, based in New South Wales in the Under Valley around Gunnedah, and it's also expanding out into the Bowen Basin in Queensland. Obviously, it's, um, it's been riding the, uh, the China boom story. And, and since uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, et cetera, energy prices have been going gangbusters and coal is still going strong. It hasn't always been upwards momentum, though. China put a ban on Australian coal a year or two ago, so that's affected it. But in the last 12 months, certainly very, very strong. And the, and the commodity graph of coal has been strong. They are starting to do a few things to alleviate their... Uh, the naysayers on, on coal who, for ESG reasons and, and obviously for global warming reasons, don't want to invest in coal. Whitehaven is focusing on quality coal. So that's the kind of coal that can be used in the, um, the lower emissions power stations, especially in Japan and some parts of Asia, where they have um, high quality, low emissions reactors. They're, they're not sort of anywhere near wind or solar, but they do uh, emit less uh, carbon than um, the old-fashioned power stations. And they also are getting into coking coal. So that's the sort of coal which is used to make steel, again, which is less focused on by the people who don't like uh, global warming. I'm going to stay neutral on that. My personal opinion, as people will know, is I'm focused on the investment quality of the business, not necessarily what it does. And uh, and I also believe we'll need coal while we transition to um, other forms of energy. So if you don't like Coal companies and by all means don't invest in this. I'm going to go through this from a QAV perspective. The interesting thing about Whitehaven Coal is that it is again another story which talks about the fundamental volatility and um, extremes that can happen in commodity markets. So this company started in 1999, listed in 2007. So it's only been listed for some 15 years. When it listed, it raised $26 million. 15 years ago, it now has a market cap today of $5 billion. So people talk about uh, you know, growth stocks and to the moon and stuff, but there's plenty of value stocks out there which can also have these kinds of um, growth characteristics, but they just tend to be overlooked by the, uh, by the high PE brigade. That's a, a testament to how strong and volatile these cycles can be. The other thing I wanted to talk about, just as an aside and for a bit of fun, uh, you can't really talk about Whitehaven Coal without talking about Nathan Tink who hasn't, aren't familiar with Nathan Tinkler, you can Google his story quite easily, but he was a young electrician going back maybe 15, 20 years ago, or maybe even less, who mortgaged his house and took out some options on, some, on a coal mine in, I think it was the Bowen Basin, but might have been the Hunter. And then uh, before the options expired, managed to talk Japanese investors into stumping up another $29 million along with his house mortgage to uh, take over this coal mine and then sold it two years later for $530 million. So in that time, obviously, coal went from being you know, very, very low and downtrodden on its commodity cycle to being the start of the Chinese boom, the Chinese waves. So, and he did that a couple of times. He, he bought uh, assets off Rio Tinto, which were selling very, very cheaply because Rio was just looking to get out for the cost of remediation. He bought them and again, over the course of his holdings, made orders of magnitudes out of that kind of uh, investment. He then... Um, Became well known for being the biggest horse race owner and breeder in Australia. 
lived in Newcastle, bought the Newcastle Jets, the soccer team. I think he may have bought the Newcastle Knights. I'm not quite sure. And then spectacularly went bankrupt. He was bankrupt to try to take over Whitehaven Coal. He was trying to merge his assets with Whitehaven Coal. They defended. I wouldn't be surprised if he still has a large holding in Whitehaven Coal. And I know there was some legal action recently where he was trying to recover money he thinks they owe them. I don't have a commentary on that. Very colourful character and tied up with the coal boom and tied up with Whitehaven Coal. Anyway, he's not as big as he was, and he's, uh, but Whitehaven and Coal goes from strength to strength. In terms of the, the numbers on QAV, like I said before, they have a, a score just sitting below the, our threshold as a buy, but uh, that's largely because their, their price to operating cash flow sits at 7.4 times, and our threshold is seven, seven or less. So that might come back into vogue again if uh, the share price drops or if in their latest results they, um, they improve their operating cash flow, which is entirely possible. A couple of things about it. Um, IV2 is $20 in our calculations, which is uh, more than two times the price. So that uh, scores well. The predicted earnings per share growth for this company is 325% for uh, earnings per share. So when we take that growth and put it over their PE, we're getting... 23.8 times, which is incredibly high. So it scores a two for growth. If people remember our, our threshold for scoring something on growth over PE is 1.5 times. So it's an order of magnitude above that. The yield is low, 1.7. So it doesn't score for that, 1.7%. But that's not unexpected. When you're earning lots of um, money, you're better off reinvesting in the company than paying out a, a dividend. Surprisingly to me anyway, directors are only holding 2% of this company. So it scores a zero for that. It's not a star stock, which again was a bit surprising, I thought, but it does have strong and recovering financial health. So that's probably the reason why it's not a star stock. Over its recent years, it was on um, satisfactory or even early warning, but now it's back up to strong. We like that. So recovering stocks often are growth stocks. So uh, it's getting two points for that and uh, one point for a strong financial health. So two points for recovering and one point for strong. So it's getting three points based on the, the um, Stock Doctor Financial Health. Doesn't score in the manually entered data category, so it's not its lowest PE ratio. It hasn't had a recent upturn. The, the coal price has been rising for a while, but it doesn't have consistently increasing equity over the last uh, five years either. So it's a recent sort of growth story. All up though, quality 67%, not too bad, and QAV 0.9, so one to watch for going forward. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Sign up for the two-week free trial and check all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. 
And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Um, check that out too. Um, it's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, uh, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. Um, that's it. Um, if you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Mm-hmm.